Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Be with every one of us gathered here in this place, in our Family Life Center, as well as those who may be leaning into this hour of worship from places not on this campus. And we welcome you with love into this time of worship and a time of study. I gotta tell you, um, Terry, I am moved by the courage and the vision of our missions committee and this church who would choose to do something so new and unexplored before as to walk alongside a refugee or to learn more about what that looks like. Doesn't it feel a little bit like the hands and feet of Christ when we do something that tangible, that real? Who knows what God may do with this meager offering of ours to help love someone to wholeness in his name. But I give thanks to God for that. And it's very, very at the center of what we've been talking about in this series called I Am, because we recognize that the longer we lean in to the identity and the call and the mission and the vision and the purpose of Jesus, the more those things become our own. That means that we fix our eyes upon the only one who is worthy, and as we do, we, we recognize some things not only about ourselves, but about something in him that has the capacity to change something in us. The way we've been talking about it is this way. You know, everything that I am is informed and transformed by who he is. Paul talked about it being like a mirror that we fix our gaze. I talked to you about this on Ash Wednesday. We fix our gaze on the cross of Christ and the longer we revere him and worship him and lean into the call of him from the cross to follow him, the more we we really look in a mirror because we see everything that is beautiful and good and right and holy and merciful and compassionate about him. And like looking in a mirror, we recognize the absence of those very things in us. But it doesn't just stay there because G.K. Beale said that, that, that whatever it is that we revere, we begin to resemble, whether for our ruin or for our restoration. And if we revere him, above every other reverence, then something in him begins to change something in us. We begin to take on the very character of Christ. And degree by degree, as the Bible says, day by day, bit by bit, Paul says, we become so transformed into his character and his identity in the world that ultimately it's as if Jesus is looking at us and sees as if Jesus is looking in a mirror because we are becoming him the longer we follow him. And as we do that, we could summarize it this way. Therefore, everything I am, well, I am who he says I am. And these last few weeks, we've been focusing our attention on the seven I am statements 
of Jesus as found in the Gospel of John. Because if we desire to be transformed into his character, we ought to know something about his character. We ought to know something about what he says he has come to do and who he says he has come to be among us. And I don't, I don't know if there could be any more important conversation for us to be having these days because I promise you that somebody has shown up today in worship and somebody is listening today in worship and, and, and if you were to finish the sentence, I am what? You would say, I am exhausted. I am worried, I am anxious, I, I am ashamed, I am afraid. I am angry. And if we're honest even a little bit, we might say that because of the thing you've been through or the thing that you're in the middle of going through, you might even say, I am lost and don't know which way to turn. And if that's where you are today, if you are in the middle of a thing and you feel a little bit lost, it's okay because into your ear, the Lord whispers these words, I am the good shepherd who will guide you to the place where life and abundance and contentment and salvation will be yours. You know, last week we talked a little bit about the shepherd, didn't we? We entered into John chapter 10, which is where our text is today. And I encourage you, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 10. We're going to begin at about verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to grab the one in front of you or nearby and turn with me in John chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we want you to take that one home as yours. Because last week we began to talk in John chapter 10 about all kinds of sheepish imagery, didn't we? We talked about sheep and shepherds and sheepfolds and gates and gatekeepers. And last week I told you a little bit about two different kinds of sheepfolds, one in the city. And in the city, all the shepherds bring all their flocks together and they stay mingled all through the night. And the next morning, the shepherds come at distances around the sheepfold and they call out in their own voice to their own sheep and their own sheep pop up and hear voices that are recognizable. And they begin to follow the voice that they know because that's the voice they've been conditioned to trust to lead them to green pastures and still waters. And we talked a little bit last week about the reality that God is attempting to have a relationship with all of God's people that has such an intimacy that it seems a little bit like sheep and a shepherd. So close that you know the textures of God's voice, that you know how to interpret God's voice as your shepherd. But I said last week that you can't Know the voice of the shepherd until you spend some time with the shepherd. Daily, hourly, moment by moment without ceasing so that you begin to recognize the call of that distinct voice who knows you best and who loves you most. We said you can't know the voice of the shepherd unless you spend some time with him. 
But I also said there's another kind of sheepfold. And last week we said there's one that's not in the city, but one that's out in the country. And it's made by forming rocks together. Sometimes they are designed by professionals. Other times haphazardly put together to make sure there's a place for the sheep to go. Sometimes there is the use of earth and rock and earthenware to make sure that the sheep have some place to go. But in each of these sheep folds, there is an opening with no door because I said last week that it is the shepherd who acts as the door who sleeps in the open passageway through the night so that if the sheep want to get out, they got to go over him. If the threat of wolves and predators and thieves and bandits and robbers were to threaten the sheep, they have to go through the shepherd. And we talked last week about how the door is access. That every one of us at some point or another in our journey will be on the outside of something we're trying to get into or we're on the inside of something we don't know how to get out of. And it's Jesus, the door that gives us access to the thing that we need the most. But last week with all of that discussion, there is something I didn't tell you about sheep. Let's pick up in verse 9 of chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 9, we read these words. I am the door, that was last week. Whoever enters by me will be saved, kept safe, and will come in and will go out and find pasture. See, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There was something in all that sheep talk last week I didn't say about sheep, and that is that sheep are not all that bright. (laughs) Sheep are helpless in so many ways. They have no natural defense, do they? I mean, they don't have fangs or claws. They don't growl. They don't hiss. They don't roar. They don't even bark. They just kind of, meh, you know. <laughs> it's not very intimidating. And, and yet they will do things that, that no other animals will, will do. Sheep will walk in a straight line until that one single file line becomes a bit of a rut and they will walk themselves right into a rut. They're not that bright. So sometimes sheep will be in a, a pasture of green grass and they will eat all the grass around them. And when they are finished consuming the grass, they'll keep eating dirt. And when they cannot digest the dirt, they will even eat the waste of other sheep. And in some cases, die. Sheep will do something interesting. They will walk grazing with their head down and they won't look up. Just grass leads to grass, leads to grass, and without looking up, they will graze themselves into a body of water. They'll graze themselves right off a cliff. Without guidance, the sheep are helpless because sheep have ingrained patterns of behavior that gone unguided will lead to their destruction. Some things preach themselves. (laughs) Because don't we? 
Is it any wonder why Jesus would choose this metaphor to describe us? That we have ingrained patterns of behaving and thinking and feeling and responding that gone unguided will routinely lead to our self-destruction. Yeah. In fact, I came across something recently that demonstrated my life perfectly. I came across this video of a sheep. He's stuck in this ravine. And he's trying to get out. And this boy, presumably the shepherd, is tugging on him, trying to get him out. He gets him unstuck from this place where he is totally helpless. And then when he gets out, well, just take a look. Watch. Oh, I'm out. Good. Oh, freedom. Oh. Oh, my word. Does that preach? That's me, Monty. That's me. In fact, you know, let's watch it again. Watch. Here's me. I don't know about you. I'm stuck. I didn't think I'd be here. I don't know how I got here. Lord, if you can just get me out of this. Lord, just thank God. Thank you, Lord. I'm free. I will never again. Oh, my. Is that not you? Do you know what it feels like to get into a pattern of behavior that gone unchecked will put you right back in the same ravine again? Sheep are helpless without their shepherd. And so are we. And so are we. Do you know that the Apostle Paul talked about this in in 2 Corinthians. Is that where it was? No, Romans 7. In the seventh chapter of Romans, he talked about this struggle that keeps repeating in his life, and he doesn't doesn't know how he can not just snap out of it. I mean, he's a follower of Christ. He's been transformed, and yet even transformed as I may be, I keep doing the same thing. And I love how Eugene Peterson translates it. Listen to these words, Romans chapter 7, verse 15. What I don't understand, what I don't understand about myself is that I I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So so if if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if, if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. By the way, if you are looking for the beginning of faith, it's with that kind of statement right there. I realize I don't have what it takes. See, I I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I, I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. 
My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. Can you feel the honesty in Paul's words? The transparency, the humility. Look, I try to will myself into being a better person, of not falling in the same hole again and again, but he struggles. He's like, it's like this war being waged in me because I know I do the things I don't want to do. And I don't do the things that I want to do. And it's like a war being waged within my heart. Do you know what that feels like? Because if you don't know what it feels like, you know what it looks like? Like this right here. Here we go again, Lord, help me. Yeah, 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 yeah. The best is the scream at the end, right? That's me too. I'm like, here I go again. Ah! You know, I'm going back in the same. And yet, Isaiah told us long ago, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. But the beauty of this I am statement that we're studying today is that he said, I am the good shepherd. I am available to pull you out of the trap you put yourself in. I will come after you. I'll leave the 99 to come and find you and mend you and heal you and restore you to a state of wholeness again. I'll carry you with my own arms next to my own heart. I don't know, somebody, somebody came here today just to hear somebody say to you, you got a shepherd. Do you know his voice? It's a voice like no other. And, and he has patience like no other. Did you know that the first two centuries of our religion, our faith, the first two centuries of the Jesus movement, of those who are seeking to follow in the way and the truth and the life of Jesus. Did you know that there was a dominant image to describe our religion in the earliest days before the empire came and stamped its stamp of approval or endorsement over us and we became kind of an official religion? Before all of that, we were known as the religion of the good shepherd. Because we were known as those who were desperate for healing, those who have been lost and yet have now been found. And so we saw the whole world through a different set of eyes. We see all of the vulnerable and the wounded and the marginalized in this world as not those to despise, but those to whom the good shepherd has come to embrace and restore and bring home again. We've got a good shepherd and therefore it's not a surprise to me why one of the most famous passages of scripture and certainly the most famous psalm in the entire Psalter is psalm number what? 23. I bet if I were to challenge you, of course in the King James, which is the only way to read Psalm 23 in my opinion, I bet if I were to start that psalm, I bet I could stop at about verse two and I bet you could finish it out loud with a voice as if you know something about the shepherd. If I were to say, the Lord is my shepherd, 
I shall not want. Yes. Amen. Well done. Somebody went to Sunday school today. <laughs> there was a small church that had a homecoming. Remember homecomings? And they had all the dinner on the grounds, right? And the singing and the worship and the preaching and the testifying and the, it's like old, old home week, right? And everybody came from cities around where they had moved over the years. But homecoming means you come home for a minute. And one of the young boys who was raised in the church, who grew up, now he's a man, he was a famous actor on Broadway, a theater actor, a thespian. And he had come home very famous. Everyone knew him and beloved was he. And he came home to his home church and everybody was doing their, their own thing. Some would read a, a passage, others would read poetry. Some would testify. They asked him to testify and he quoted Psalm 23. When he did, it was gorgeous. He had this deep, resonant bass voice and the elocution was perfection. He would peak in some place, a crescendo, decrescendo. He, there would be drama to the reading of the 23rd song. It was powerful. You could feel it in the room when he was finished. The entire church clapped. They, they applauded for this recitation of the 23rd psalm. And they went on. Other people testified, sang, preached, went on. Service went on for a little while. And then eventually they asked Miss Sarah to testify. Miss Sarah was 90 years old and had taught most of them in the church during Sunday school as a child. She made her way slowly up to the front, grabbed the microphone, and she too recited Psalm 23. But the way she did it came from a different place. It was slower and from a, a depth of 90 years of walking behind the ship. At the end, there was not a dry eye in the house. And one of the boyhood friends of the actor leans over in the pew and says, you didn't get that kind of response. To which the actor leaned back and said, no. See, I know the psalm. She knows the shepherd. Do you know the shepherd? Do you? Because if you do, you know how true it is to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. To not want doesn't mean you don't desire. To not want doesn't mean you don't have a hunger for something. To not want means I lack nothing that I need. The Lord is my shepherd and I am in no lack of anything important enough to need. See, some of us walk aimlessly like sheep through life because we don't think we have enough. 
uh, enough money, enough things, enough stuff, enough relationships, enough pleasure, enough experiences. So we constantly consume more and more because we're constantly in want. There must be something I'm missing. I'm just not happy. And yet, what if everything that you actually need is already right in front of you? See, what we're talking about is the difference between having a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset. Earlier in the week, Laura, my wife, is rereading a book from Brene Brown. If you don't know Brene Brown, you need to get to know Brene Brown. And in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, Laura pointed out, she's rereading this, and she pointed out a passage that I thought, I can't keep this to my, I got to read this to you because this is, this is money. This is right on the nose. And she's quoting actually another writer. Her name is Lynn Twist in her book, The Soul of Money. But listen to what she talks about when she talks about the difference between a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset. She said, for me, and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. Anybody think that the moment you wake up, oh, can I, can I hit another hour? Can I? The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. We don't have enough exercise. We don't have enough work. We don't have enough profits. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough wilderness. We don't have enough weekends. Of course, we don't ever have enough money, ever. We're not thin enough. We're not smart enough. We're not pretty enough or fit enough or educated enough or successful enough or rich enough ever. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate. Already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds race with a litany of what we didn't get or what we didn't get done. Am I preaching to anybody today? We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to the reverie of lack. The reverie of lack. What begins as a simple expression of the hurried life or even the challenged life grows into a justification for an unfulfilled life. Beloved, some of us move through life so frustrated and so discontent because we assume that there is something out there that we don't have that we need. And if we just give that one more thing, more time, more money, more space, then we'll be satisfied. But when you know the shepherd, you realize that you have everything that you already need. That there is a good shepherd, and with this good shepherd, I shall not want. Maybe you came today 
to be challenged into considering the possibility that what the Good Shepherd wants to do is elevate your awareness to stimulate your consciousness to all that you do have. Because all you need is the shepherd. Verse two continues. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. This is always an interesting verse to me. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Here's what's interesting to me. Green pastures, why would a sheep lie down in green pastures? If I'm a sheep, I'm thinking to myself, all this green pasture is for me to consume. And so we, like sheep, will see abundance and we will, out of fear, consume all that we can. We'll get all we can, we'll can all we get, and we sit on our cans, right? Because we fear there may be a day when the green pasture is not green anymore and then maybe it's not available to me anymore, but he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Why? Because when you're with the shepherd, you don't have to worry where the next pasture will come. I had a conversation with my son, Nathan, about two months ago. He graduates next month from Samford, which is ridiculous because like last week he was three years old. Literally last week, I remember we go to Athens, Tennessee. There's an agricultural fair and there's a petting zoo. He's three years old and we're leaning down next to this cage. And for the very first time in his life, I'm teaching him how to touch and pet the heavy wool of the first sheep he'd ever seen. And tomorrow he's doing some kind of nonsense next month, like graduating from college, right? He calls me a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, and I asked his permission to share this. It was a very stressful time. He's very anxious. He's like, Dad, I cannot calm down. This is a very anxious time right now. And he was right. You know, finishing up school, he's got a job, he's thinking about his future, he was applying to seminaries and, and beyond and, and doing all kinds of work to get ready for what's next. And, and this pressure was mounting on him. He said, I don't know what to do. So he said to me, so I went to Psalm 23. And I read it again and again, kind of Lexio Divina. I let it wash over me. I let it read it again and again to see what pops up. And it occurred to me I couldn't get past verse 2. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. What's that about? So I started thinking about my life. And the fact is, all of my life is a green pasture. I mean, I got a great family. I, I go to a great school. I've got good options after I graduate. I work at a great church. I have good friendships. My whole life is a green pasture. I've got nothing to complain about. My problem, my son says to me, is I don't know how to lay down. I walk back and forth over all this lush green grass. Back. I can't rest and I don't know how. And I don't know about you, but that is prophetic to me. Does that not speak an experience that you have from time to time in your life. You got everything that you need, but you can't lie down. And he's the one who maketh me lie down. And why? So that I come to grips with the reality that I don't have to create the green grass. I don't have to create the pasture. I don't have to edge it. I don't have to mow it. I don't have to aerate it. I don't have to water it. I don't have to seed it. I don't have to resod it. That's my problem. I think that all the pastures I'm going to graze upon are my own making. That if I work hard enough, if then I can control the outcome, then I will be fed. 
But this shepherd is the one who says to you, I need you to lie down for just a hot minute so that you remember who brought you to this field and I will take you to the next. See, some of us need to learn the joy of letting go of the shepherd's job because there's room for only one shepherd and the rest of us are the sheep. I don't know. Looks like I'm going to do some editing on the fly here. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the shortest sermon you've ever heard from me. But do you know what my prayer is some days? I am so like my son on some days that it becomes a daily practice to relinquish the illusion of control that I have on my life. And my prayer is that I might be able to embody one day the prayer of the medieval mystic, Juliana of Norwich, who said, all shall be well, all shall be well, and every manner of thing shall be well. Last point. The third verse I got to get this one in before we go. Third verse. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Do you know what we sometimes have to learn? Is to unlearn that which we have learned so that we might learn what God wants us to learn. We have to do some unlearning because when you and I come across the word soul, most of us in the room are so Western thinking We are children of the Enlightenment, so we inherited an idea of the soul that comes really more from Plato and Aristotle than Scripture, and that is that the soul is some kind of thing inside us, and it's kind of lodged in there, and when we die, it's free, and it goes to live somewhere else. But the Hebrew idea of soul is nothing like that. The soul is something that you are. That at creation, God leans over into the embankment, scoops up the clay, forms the first people, and then aft to aft, nostril to nostril, blows the ruach of God, the breath of God, and they become a living nefesh. The nefesh means living soul. One who is whole, one who is balanced, one who is integrated, much like the Trinity is integrated, Father, Son, Spirit. You were made to be whole and integrated in this life. The trouble is we live in a world, even though you are made as integrated beings, you live in a world that will disintegrate you. And the troubles we go through in this life will unravel you to the core. And when I hear that the good shepherd is the one who restoreth my soul, He's the one who puts back together those broken pieces that have unraveled in my life and leads me down the paths of righteousness. Now, don't get upset about that churchy word, righteousness. It simply means he leads me down the right paths, the paths that actually lead to life. You know, Jesus said there are two paths in life. There's a wide road. And and many people are on it. And it's the easy way, but in the end, it leads to destruction. But there is this other road. It's a narrow road, and few are on it. And it's difficult, and there are obstacles, and you won't want to be on it. And yet, the end leads to life. Choose the narrow road. And I don't know about you, but this shepherd who leadeth me in the right paths Every morning I have to pray to him, Lord, I know that by noon I will have to make 50 decisions and the majority of them will be wrong. Help me to see. 
to choose the paths on every decision that you would have me choose. Because if I don't, you know what my life looks like? It looks like this. And that's the sound of my cry every night. Lord, I blew it today. But beloved, I just, I just wanted to talk long enough today for you to understand that you don't have to linger lost. That there is a shepherd who sees you, who comes after you, and who wants to embrace you to a place of wholeness. Now, you got to come back another day if we're going to finish up this psalm. But I think I want to end it right there because the, the Spirit is telling me that somewhere, somebody here today, you got it. You got the point. You don't have to do this by yourself. You don't have to worry about where your next green pasture will come from. You don't have to worry about the valley of the shadow of death even because you've been there with the shepherd. Another day when I have some more time, I'm going to talk to you about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't have time to do it today. But if I had some time, Fred, you know what I would do? I would say that, yes, we all lose people we love and we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we were never the same after that. But if I had some time, I would talk to you about how this 51-year-old 51, has learned that there's not just the final death, but you and I will experience on a daily basis a thousand micro-deaths in this life where you come to the end of a thing that mattered. You come to the end of a vocation. You come to the end of a season of life. You see the death of a story that you thought you were writing in your life. And at the end of that, you still have to grieve the very same way you grieve when your loved one dies. You still go through a period of shock and then a period of denial and then a period of anger and maybe some bargaining and then ultimately a deep sadness that leads you to a place of acceptance. And I'm telling you, if you've been with the shepherd, you know that there is no valley of any shadow of micro death that you can't survive because he walks with you and his rod and staff, they comfort you. You're not meant to walk that valley alone and you don't have to because there is a shepherd wanting to lead you.